Hello, listeners, and welcome to another installment of the Predlines podcast. We're a man down today on the uh, on the podcast penalty kill. Did you like that, George? Oh, I appreciate that. It's a good pun. Yeah, hockey references. Um, yeah, we are we are without co-editor Corey Francis today, who is, uh, I believe, uh, doing correct doing correctly and spending time with his family. Uh, unlike I think you and I, who are. Um, hold away in our little corners to do a hockey podcast. Yep. Um, but you know that's uh, that's our job, right? Got to keep the listeners informed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. See, I did uh, see you in Chicago this past week. How are how's uh, how's it being back in Madison? Nice and cold. Uh, actually, it's like twenty degrees outside. It's pretty balmy. I had to I had to take off one of my sweatshirts. Oh, I think we're in the thirties here, but it's supposed to be like sixty degrees this week. Hmm. So that's back to the that's back to the Nashville winter we know and love. No more of this very cold. Uh, but yeah, uh, I was uh, driving through uh, northern Indiana, beautiful part of the country, Ooh. and uh, the car my car actually had trouble starting. It was I think fourteen below zero this past week there. So Ouch. this feels nice. Thirties uh, mm. is, is just fine. Anyway, um, speaking of, well, yeah, I guess I could do this. Speaking of cold, the Predators have not been playing very well lately. <laughs> there you go. I'm just full of these. Full That's of these nice. Um, however, I, I would be remiss if I don't mention uh, a Tighten Up Nation winning their first playoff game since I was a wee lad. I think I was eight or nine years old the last time the Titans won a playoff game, and here we are in 2018. Hell has frozen over. The Titans have won a playoff game. Um, yeah. Anyway, but that's that's all the football. That's all the football will do. Because as I've as I have discovered this weekend, not all Predators fans are also Titans fans. Shocker. Well, We're not all happened. Team Tennessee. That's what happens when your team's good. You start to get bandwagon fans from other states. Oh, oh. Yeah. There's a lot of weirdly like uh, a lot of Missourians. It seems that are Predators fans. I find I see um, a lot of Kentucky fans, which I I understand because well, there's yeah. no hockey team in Kentucky, but still I'm like I know. You got to think of of states where there are NFL teams, though, George. What does Kentucky have in general besides like that one base or basketball team, like the college one? Oh, that's a great question. They have yeah. college teams, but that's I don't. It. I think that's think. it. It's just like UK or KU. Wow. I can't. I can't remember which whichever one's not Kansas. Does Kentucky not have any professional sports teams? No. I feel not. like we're missing something very obvious. Are you looking it up? Yes, because this is yeah. great. This is exactly what people want to hear about. Um, I don't believe they have a professional sports team. Uh, they might have minor league baseball. Um, well, everywhere has yes. minor league baseball. My apartment right. has minor league baseball. Like, <laughs> well, they're just they everywhere. A, they have uh, a... The Louisville Bats are a minor league baseball team in Kentucky. Anyway, uh, hockey, Predators hockey, to be more specific. Uh, the Predators just finished up a three-game road trip visiting some of the Western teams out in Vegas, then in Arizona, and finishing up in Los Angeles on Saturday night. Uh, they were, through those games, they were 1-1-1, one, one, and one, so nice and even, getting the getting the 500 level. Uh, which I guess is what you shoot for on the road, but it was altogether, I think, pretty disappointing. Uh, you got to say, especially that Arizona game, uh, which Nashville kind of uncharacter- uncharacteristically completely dominated and yet still dropped the points um, with a kind of a 
fluky overtime goal that they had to review twice. Um, anyway, but no matter how you cut it, you you can't really lose to the Coyotes. But we'll start with uh, with this Vegas game, which was just pretty much a textbook case of domination. Uh, unfortunately, coming against Nashville, I thought this. I think I missed the first period, and I joined in in the second. And I, th- I mean, it was such a fun game. Like it was so back and forth, really fast paced, great goaltending. And then once Vegas kind of got that first goal, it seems like maybe the floodgates just sort of opened up a little bit. Um, they only scored two in that second period, but that was kind of, I thought the the end of Nashville's, um, you know, compete level in that game. Very few penalties. I think there were only three penalties called in the whole game. But really, just Vegas had the advantage until very late in the game, and and then they got the the empty net goal anyway. So Nashville really never never competed very much in this game. Were there any things you any uh, notable takeaways you had from this Vegas game? You know, I actually really liked the way that Nashville played uh, as far as defense goes. It was the first game where I really felt comfortable saying that this defense could probably go to back to the Stanley Cup Finals. They only gave up four high-danger chances the entire game, which against a fast team like the Golden Knights is quite the accomplishment. Uh, it was just other normal scoring chances. Pecorine was pretty bad. I thought both. I thought the first few goals he'd love to have back, uh, especially that first one. That was just that was just brutal. You need your goalie needs to stop that one. Um, but yeah, it's their their offense is kind of what failed. It's what stalled on them, and I guess it makes sense, seeing as it was their first game. I think without Philip Forsberg, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, they only had two high danger chances, but it just really never felt like they kind of found a groove for more than 20 seconds at a time, at least in the offensive zone. Um, yeah, just, I don't know, they just never really ever got to the front of the net. And it, it co- I think it cost them the game. Yeah, neither team, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, the Gold Knights had just four high danger chances at even strength, Preds had two. So, both teams did a very poor job of getting to that low slot area. If you kind of look at the heat maps, where teams are taking shots from, it's very spread out. Uh, Nashville, for whatever reason, really likes shooting from the top of the <laughs> left faceoff circle. I'm not sure why. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of who. Oh, is. no, it's that's the top of the right circle. I can tell you why. Sorry, it's top of the right circle. It was because uh, P.K. Subban and Ryan Ellis. Yeah, are, are, right, finally, right. are finally. I was. I, was, I knew it was yeah. going to be. It must be defensemen up there taking yeah. shots from high area. Yeah, um, and those. I mean, somewhat frustratingly, I thought against Los Angeles, they did get. I think two goals from defensemen taking those long distance shots. Um, so they'll probably just keep trying it. But in a game like that, you just got to start. Kind of, you got to understand that those those high shots are not gonna. After a certain time, you're going to realize those aren't working, and you need to just sacrifice that shot and and try to get the puck into a dirty area. Um, well, I mean, but was, you know, like you said, defensively they were okay. I, they, you know, they they gave up very little in terms of chances. It was kind of a rare, um, you know, down game for Pecorine, who's normally kind of the highlight of the Predators roster every night. <laughs> so some improving some areas, and then just falling apart in others and unfortunately the result was a three nothing shoot uh shutout rather yeah you know it, going back to that point that you're making earlier about uh maybe not just shooting from those upper from those upper areas in the point i have a buddy that works out in laval for the uh for the rockets and he and i were talking about you know maybe in the future instead of just taking the easy shot maybe it's better to just hold on to possession 
And I've kind of been wondering about that too. Maybe it'd just be better to actually work around the perimeter, like just like how you would with the power play, to wait until you have that opportune shot rather than just trying to get a quantity of shots on that and hoping that one gets tipped or it creates a rebound and goes in. Um, because well, I, sort of, you know, you mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, just because from a lot of what what I see is a lot of defensemen will look and think that they have no option, and so what they'll do is they'll just take the shot themselves, and. It's a very it's a very safe shot from it's from a very non non you know low danger area, and so it kind of you know the goalie makes an easy save or kicks rebound right out to to the defender who's there to help out, and then you know the puck's going the other way. But what if the defense probably was a little, was a little more hesitant to shoot the puck, and you know rather than just take that easy shot, maybe hold on to possession and kind of wait for a better moment. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know the part of the fun of watching like three on three overtime for me, I like that everyone is so careful with possession because you, the last thing you want to do in overtime is turn the puck over basically Um, above all else. You need to keep carrying the puck and you'd like to, I understand it's different because there's, you know, substantially fewer players on the ice in overtime, but you want, I would, I would want to see kind of what you're saying of rather than feeling like something needs to happen with the puck now, let's fit, you know, like either I need to find a pass or I just have to shoot it come out of more more of a perspective of there's no rush we have the puck keep trying to figure out how to get into those dangerous areas and and, and not just waste um waste possession on those long shots that the goalie's going to grab or or probably deflect out of play and it's you know it's just something that i've been i've been kind of complaining about all year really with the predators and it's something i can't really put my finger on but when you watch other games like last night, I was watching the Toronto Vancouver game before the Preds game. Oh, it's a good game, and there's just it was a great game. And there's something about, especially Toronto, but even even Vancouver, and this is not unique to just those teams. This is kind of any game I watch. Offenses just look dangerous. Other teams' offenses, I think, when they have the puck, they they really seem like they're threatening and they're creating chaos in the offensive zone. And when I watch the Predators play, maybe I'm just biased. Maybe I'm kind of desensitized because I watch their games more often. I just don't feel that it doesn't it feels like they're they're kind of skating around the edge the perimeter way too often and even when they're doing that they're struggling to keep possession you know passes are bouncing over sticks people are getting turnovers and I just and that's something I can't you know I can't look at it and say oh well they need to change x y and z it just sort of seems like a general theme of their offenses it just doesn't seem dangerous and they really rely on um you know when when the goals aren't just coming easily which in some cases, it seems like the Preds just get some very easy goals. You know, the goaltender plays it wrong or, you know, something. But in games where they're not getting those goals, they just cannot figure out how to change their approach. But they just, like, especially in this Vegas game, when when you're going, you know, 20 or even 40 minutes and you're not seeing any goals, you've got to understand to go maybe with your plan B in your mind, like plan A is not working, taking these shots from the right faceoff circle, Ryan Ellis, PK Subban, <laughs> you know, it's not working. What if I, you know, either either find a pass into the slot or if I take the puck myself into the slot, you know, the Predators have an advantage of having very mobile defensemen. You'd like to see them kind of think in that more, think just more creatively and try to create different types of chances rather than just beating their head against the wall. Yeah. The team that I think that the Predators should maybe take a note from is the 2010 Vancouver Canucks. And that's going back, you know, eight years or so, but 
back before then, I think uh, the game that they played, which was the cycle, was very heavily thought of as a big bruising team kind of game that wore, that wore defenses down. But what you saw from Elaine Vigneault and with the uh, Sedin twins and uh, Ryan Kessler was that faster, more skill-based teams could run it and rely more on their speed to do so rather than just their raw strength. And by doing so, they really opened up the middle of the ice or they opened up the point because uh, wingers would be drawn down. Now, I will say this. The Predators do have a much better defensive core than that uh, Vancouver Canucks team did. And so by drawing that winger down, they might actually open up some more space for guys like Ryan Ellis or Roman Yossi or P.K. Subban. And that might allow them to get more to the point. Because one of the things I think that we we both see, at least from the heat maps and just from you know the normal eye test, is that a lot of these uh, a lot of these other teams have kind of figured out that if they play a winger that's a little high and more towards the middle, they can keep the Predators' defense to the uh, to the sides of the point and keep them shooting from those really low danger areas. And I think that's really hurting the Predators and the Predators' uh, defensive points as well. Um, I, so I think maybe switching over to something like the cycle might be in the best interest because right now it really looks like a some kind of free form high cycle sort of thing. Not even I wouldn't even call it a high cycle. It's just. I, I don't even really know what it ha- what it looks like. At least, uh, maybe you know better than I do, but to me it just kind of looks like this blob where players are kind of in positions and aren't really moving as much, and they kind of wait for one guy to do everything, and then they try to base their reactions off what that one guy is doing rather than trying to move and create space. Well, yeah, it seems a lot of the time like they they need to send the puck around the boards um, repeatedly to create any space. And so obviously when you're having to send the puck around the boards two or three times, even four or five, each time that happens, you risk losing possession. And more Mm -hmm. often than not, you do lose possession of the puck, but it seems like that's their only, the only way they can think to create space is to try to get the puck in deep. But you think with their skill and their speed and a lot in, and some of the, you know, the brains they have on this offense and, and, and defense, that they would be able to come up with something a little more um, threatening than just sending the puck around the boards. But sometimes it just seems like they get in these, just, I don't know, it's, it's almost like the they, it gets in their heads very quickly, very early on in these games, and they just, it's like they freeze up and they, they stick to one thing and that never works and they just kind of break down. And then it's just kind of, sort of an inevitable loss as the defense can't hold up the entire game. But um, all that said, Vegas is a very good team this year. <laughs> um, and I say this year, meaning I don't think they're a very good team. <laughs> no. But at this very at this specific point in time, they seem to be doing very well. It's kind of beyond explanation, but it's been repeated often enough that I think I can say that they're a, a good team this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so losing, you know... They just kind of added to the list of teams. I always find, and, and maybe because I I do find myself, like, I think, listening to a lot of media, you know, based in Toronto, you know, essentially. And, and it seems like when the Leafs played in, in Vegas, their takeaway was that the Leafs never really got into their stride. They never really played their game, um, that the Leafs played badly. And I think I tend to think that way, too. When Nashville, the two times Nashville's played Vegas is, well, you know, the Predators never really got into their stride. So maybe... Obviously, that's just two teams. I'm from my sample size, but maybe the Vegas is just very good and doesn't allow teams to get into their stride. You know, they shut down offenses well enough um, and only allowed two high danger chances the whole game. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not the end of the world. But it's yeah, not, if, uh, for example, losing to the Arizona Coyotes. Just just going back to Vegas for real quick. Just a closing thought. Can you tell me who the best person on that bench is? On the Vegas bench. On Vegas's bench? Yep. Um, 
Oh, I mean, it's probably Mark Andre Fleury. <laughs> I don't know where Jonathan Marsh is, so. though. I will disagree. I will say that Gerard Gallant is the best person on that bench. Well, yeah, okay. Their right. coaching question. is Trick absolutely question. immaculate. I and I'm sorry yes. to do that to you on on air, but that's all right. That's I am, right. I am absolutely. I've been enamored with Gerard Gallant ever since he was in Florida. Yeah. I mean, I know he had a rough patch in Columbus a couple years ago, but yeah, he is. He's the reason they're succeeding the way they are. No offense to their players, and you know Jonathan Marcheseau and Riley Smith and all that, but two other Florida Panthers greats. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. that's all. That's all I got to say. Yeah, that's got to hurt. That's got to hurt for a Panthers fan. Oh, it's got to because they're succeeding for all their with all the pieces that you had. <laughs> well, especially Jonathan Marcheseau is like making what seven hundred fifty thousand dollars this year. <laughs> yeah, I guess he just signed that five million dollar contract. But holy smokes, that's uh, yeah. that's not a good deal. That's that's a great no. deal, but that's not good for the Panthers. Oh, um, all right. Anyway, we'll we'll move on to the mm. this Coyotes game, which was uh, when you look at kind of the the uh, game flow. So who who had possession? Who was taking shots? When it is the exact opposite of the Vegas game, mm-hmm. in that Nashville had an overwhelming advantage in shot production. Um, really, it, I think about five minutes into the first period, it became it's it dipped into Nashville's uh, favor and it just stayed there, even down to I think looks like their final like when the game ended the shot attempt differential was plus 32 for Nashville so they had taken 32 more shot attempts than Arizona by the end of the game yeah Oof. um and yet they they lost in uh, as it was we saw in overtime um and it was a weird game cuz Nashville scored two goals within i think 20 seconds of each other yeah but with they the, were the separated break. by an intermission right yeah so very strange game um Arizona just kind of laid down and died, and Nashville wasn't going to let it happen. It's <laughs> the only thing I can think. They're giving up another lead very late. That was kind of our our big headache earlier on in the year. I think they've gotten better at at mitigating those late game losses, but um, we came back to bite them here, allowing Arizona to tie it up late and then lose and then uh, win it in overtime. Rather, yeah. Um, in terms of high danger chances. Nashville had 12 to Arizona's five, so that was much better. They really did a good job at getting into those areas. In fact, when you look at, at the shooting heat map, really the only dark, really dark blue section on the ice for Nashville was right in front of net, so they did a good job there. Um, but just for whatever reason, couldn't capitalize very often, only getting those those two goals from the 12 high-danger chances. And let's see, uh, 75 total shot attempts in that game. Good Lord for yeah. Nashville. So uh, aside from all that, aside from just Nashville dominating, what did what did you pick up on in this game? Uh, as far as the prayers go, I picked up that they got really unlucky and they faced a really hot goaltender. Uh, this is a game they absolutely should have won. Um, the defense, I the defense wasn't very good in front of UC Saros. I don't think um, if you take a look at where the at where all three goals came from uh, for the Coyotes, they all come from within like five feet of the net, like right below the hash marks. Um, and they were all second or third attempts. That that last goal that was being reviewed, uh, I mean, I don't even know what PK Subban was doing there. Like he was off on the side of the net. Well, I not it wasn't Cousins, but it was someone else had like a very clear shot. And credit to Saros, he never gave up. He actually blocked. He actually got a pad on the shot that on that shot that went in. But yeah, I don't know. That was that was pretty bad. I was this was the game that I kind of started paying attention to uh, how lines were performing, like line by line. 
and it was just some lines were incredible, some lines were absolutely brutal. Uh, the as far as the Coyotes go, the, that Anthony Duclair line was just on fire. I mean, he, I don't know if you watched, but he looked like a man possessed, especially on that first yeah, goal been, that he scored. He's been great in their past few games, and in, in, in spite of a lot of drama surrounding his placement on that team, yeah, um, yeah, he he was incredible. Uh, I didn't. I don't know. I this is a game that Predators probably should have won five to three or five to two, but Auntie Ranta was just it was just incredible. And these kind of games are going to happen. You just hope that they don't happen against these really bad teams like Arizona. You you don't think that they that they will. Yeah, giving Nashville giving Arizona, I guess their tenth win. Yeah, that would have been number ten in forty three games. So, um, yeah, on paper, I mean that's pretty unacceptable, but. Like you said, it's just one of those things. You you meet a hot goaltender, things don't fall into place for you for the whole the sixty plus minutes, and and that's the result. It, I just think for for me, it, it couldn't have come at a worse time really because Nashville's been pretty uh, lukewarm lately. I think they were two four and two coming into that game, or maybe into the the LA game. Anyway, they haven't been great lately. So when you see a team like Arizona on the on the calendar and you're slumping, you think, okay, that's our chance. You just need to make that a statement game, start burying burying some of these chances and, and get everyone's confidence back up and, and get ready for a tough team in Los Angeles. And then, of course, just get ready for the coming weeks. And then when you lose to a team like Arizona, it just kind of takes all that potential wind out of the sails and you're stuck back where you started and in kind of a slump. Yeah. Um, luckily, they did manage to get the point out of the game, so uh, they had a chance to go into L- uh, Los Angeles and, like I mentioned earlier, get the get the five hundred, get uh, three out of six available points, and they did just that. Although it was a nail biter there at the end, the Preds get the four three win. Um, especially once uh, the Kings went empty net, it was just pretty much chaos for for the last uh, moments of that game. I really thought they were going to tie it up, and I think everyone. Uh, in the Staples Center, thought they were going to tie it up as well. It sounded like it was very, very loud in there, and I was uh, kind of worrying for Rene holding on for dear life there. Yeah, I saw um, a little bit of the writing on the wall. Was that? Yeah, good? right. It's it, it just it didn't seem like it was going to end in Nashville. It was going to be another ugly result for Nashville, but luckily they were able to hang on. Uh, this was a very strange game as well. Um, these are all kind of weird games in their own right. Uh, you know, keep in mind that there were seven. Nashville had seventy-five shot attempts against Arizona, and they had only twenty-seven total against uh, Los Angeles at five-on-five. Rather, um, the game pretty much fell in in the Kings' favor the entire time. Although Nashville did kind of pour on the goals, uh, it seemed like Jonathan Quick wasn't having the greatest game. And he had, I think, it was the start of the second period. There was maybe a five-minute stretch. Um, Chris Mason was mentioning this a lot on the on the telecast that they. You know, he. I think he got knocked over um, a couple times. You know, players running into him, getting pushed into him, and then he got. He took a puck to the ear, basically. So he was getting really rattled around at the start of that second period, and he didn't look to me like he was. He was as good as John Quick can be. So I think the Predators probably benefited from a, an off night from Quick, um, getting that, getting those four goals and and those two in kind of relatively quick succession in the second period. But they did, as I mentioned, they they kind of threatened to to lose the game late. Uh, they they did score a goal in the third period that uh, well, Austin Watson got his second goal. I believe that was Watson's second goal. I think he scored the final two. Um, I really wanted him to get the hat trick, man. Yeah, that would be nice. I love Austin Watson. I love that man. 
uh, yeah. Anyway, your 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 thoughts on this Los Angeles victory, um, or rather, victory in Los Angeles? Yeah. Um, I really liked the I really liked the win. Uh, quality over quantity is the big thing. The Predators beat uh, the Kings in scoring chances and uh, tied them at high danger chances at five. Which again, keeping the Kings to five chances is is pretty good. One of the things that really stuck out to me was how the Predators actually handled Andre Kopitar, who really didn't have much going on for most of the game. Um, I believe, yeah, he had a 36 Corsi and a 42 Fenwick, which is incredible because he's one of the better two-way players in the entire in the entire league. Um, was on the ice for one one goal against at five on five, but did get a secondary assist on the power play goal. But otherwise, yeah, just kind of got beat. Uh, was on the ice for two high danger chances against six scoring chances against. Um, and just, you know, the Predators never really let up on him, and that, that was really good. I know he saw a lot of Ryan Johansson and Kelly Yarncroken. Both of them were able to kind of keep him out of, you know, out of a dangerous area. Um, one of the things I thought that the Predators did really well, and I'm sure that they talked about it before the game, was moving shots uh, laterally. One of the things that Jonathan Quick does so well is coming out to meet uh, to meet a, sh- a shooter, he really kind of gets out of his net, almost reminiscent of like Tim Thomas back in like 2011 or 2012. He's just so good at kind of getting out and physically almost like pressuring the the shooter to actually shoot because you know he's out so much. Uh, but I think that that was best exemplified on the first Austin Watson goal where PK Subban made that pass right across the uh, the offensive zone laterally, right to Austin Watson who pretty much had a wide open net because. John Cook was just too far out yeah. to kind of move move all the way over to the side, um, and then of course also just getting uh, bodies in front of them, especially on the second Watson goal, like we talked about. Um, yeah, I I liked it a lot. Um, I think that the Pairs did a really good job as far as that goes. There's still a lot of things that kind of need to be mended. Um, Johansson looked better than he has in the past, but he still kind of looked a little bit lackluster. Uh, it was good of him to get that kind of point though on on Hartnell's goal. I was really happy about that. Yeah. Um, and that I think that Los Angeles game was the second game, so they this was the case in, in Arizona as well, that we've seen um, the line of was it Nick Benino, Colton Sissons, and Scott Hartnell. Yeah. And really, frankly, very unimpressed with, with that line, especially in Los Angeles. Those three players kind of – they're all sitting in the very in, in the bottom of of the Predators' um, uh, kind of possession stats. So they were they were giving up a lot of chances and not creating many of their own. In the past uh, three games, I guess they so they have they I guess they've been together for they were together for that whole road trip. They played just under twenty five minutes together at uh, five on five. They generated a fifty percent Corsi, so exactly as many. Uh, shot attempts as their opponents, and pretty much the same unblocked, so 51% Fenwick. Um, they did, they've allowed five high danger chances in three and created three of their own in those three games, so they're getting outshot uh, in the slot, and they started about 50% of their uh, zone starts were in the offensive zone. I think this. I, and I, I think I didn't. I, we talked about this a little bit before, and I'm, I'm more critical of Benino. I think you're a little more critical of Colton Sissons. I've just Benino has been completely invisible, and I realize that his role, I guess, as a three C. You know, he's not supposed to be the most high profile player on the ice. In fact, he's probably supposed to be playing more of a shutdown role. But 
I think the Predators have just been entirely ineffective with these three on the ice, at least in the past couple games. And I realize, you know, the lines are getting changed around, obviously. Forsberg's out. We've got uh, Pontus Aberg in the lineup a lot. The the bottom, I guess the, the you know, the last three players on this, on this forward group are kind of being interchanged um, as players, you know, like uh, Cody McLeod, Mika Salamaki, all kind of swap out. But... Uh, yeah, I, th- I think in general, I've just been very unimpressed with this line, and I'd be interested to hear what your your thoughts are, kind of on on this group of players specifically. Well, I'm gonna keep this. I'm gonna do this kind of categorically, or I'm gonna do it player by player, just so I don't go off on tangents. Uh, I'm gonna start with Nick Benino, and I think the big thing, I, the big question I have is, how could we have known that he wasn't gonna produce the same totals that he's been producing? When we don't, you know, now that we don't have Phil Kessel on his line, I think it's right, just, exactly. I think it's shocking that he's not playing yeah, the same numbers. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> oh god, that's such right. a. And going back to what you're saying, you know, now it kind of seems like he's more of a shutdown guy. But why do you get him then? Because you have Kyle Yarnkrok, who's proven time and time again that he can play that role, and you just basically got another Kyle Yarnkrok that's older and more expensive. And that contract's probably going to hurt quite a bit, especially in the coming off seasons when you need to resign guys like Roman Yossi and Ryan Ellis and all them. Like that's not going to be a fun contract, especially with the new six million that's going to be on the books next year with uh, Kyle Turris. Um, but otherwise, Nick Benio, he's he's been okay. I don't necessarily hate him. I'm a little surprised that he's not getting power play time, but I do think that he kind of makes up a little bit for his his inefficiencies at five on five with some of his penalty killing, but he doesn't see quite a bit as much as penalty killing time as I thought he would. Um, yeah, he just, he's also pretty weak in the slot, which is really not good for a center. Uh, moving on to Scott Hartnell. I love the guy. He's a great old power forward, but man, he's getting old. And that injury that he suffered clearly was, isn't, isn't doing him any favors. I don't necessarily, I think you and I talked about it earlier, but I think that his biggest role in this team from going forward is probably going to be power play and power play specialist in front of the net. And they're just going to hope that he treads water. And for every goal he gives up, he's going to score another one, you know, because clearly he's not really going he's not really a producer anymore. And he's not really moving the needle. At least in my eyes, you can feel free to disagree and, you know, tell me why, but that really brings me to my third guy, which is Colton Sissons, which I've never been high on. Uh, I've never liked Colton Sissons. Really. I watched him last season in the playoffs and thought, you know, cool, fine. But, Everyone thought he might be the new top six guy or whatnot, but, you know, have we, I've watched the play, I've been watching the playoffs my entire life, so about, you know, 22 years now, and I've seen so many, so many bottom six guys that were fourth liners or, you know, were fringe third liners or maybe even were fringe NHLers just go off in the playoffs and just outperform every, you know, outperform every expectation that's ever been placed on them, and I think that's kind of what we got with Colton Sissons. He's not really good on offense, yet he continues to get power play time. He's not really good on defense, yet he continues to get penalty kill time and time in like he continues to get time in the final minute, uh, you know, on a face off that starts in his own zone when he's been absolutely garbage at getting the puck out of his own zone. I remember just again the game in uh, Arizona against the Coyotes. He was responsible for that first goal against Duclair, where he pretty much just kind of, well, I guess he got stripped of the puck, but. Even calling him, even saying that he was stripped of the puck is kind of, you know, a disservice to what it really was, where Colton Sissons just forgot how to play hockey for about a second there, and Duclair swooped in and made a nice little power move to the front while Sissons did everything he could to get back in the place, but, you know, by then it was too late. 
And from there, I actually started counting from pretty much that goal on. And he failed to clear the zone about four different times, with three of them being chip outs that should have gone way out. But they, you know, the defender just kind of stood there and either picked out of the air or got in front of it with his body. And you know, now then the Coyotes had possession in the uh, their offensive zone again. I don't really understand why Colton Sissons is actually on this team. I think there are better players, uh, especially Freddie Goudreau. I think would be a much better, much more defensively responsible player than Sissons that could come in and make an uh, impact right away. Also, if you want more offense, there's this great kid in uh, this great kid in Milwaukee, uh, Emil Peterson, or I don't know how to say. It. We, we already went over saying his name, but yes, right. I yeah. think you're pretty much right. Emil Peterson. Emil Peterson. Yeah. I I don't know, man. This line has just been awful the other. And it's not gotten better. It's they're just they're just not good together. And I hate being the guy that's always going to be a downer. But if if they stay together, if nothing changes, then that's an indictment on Peter Laviolette and his inability to actually make a good coaching decision. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> some some of these other bottom six guys. Uh, this fourth line that we've seen is uh, Mika Salamaki, Callie Hunkirk, and Austin Watson. Obviously, just when you hear those names, you know that you know this line's role: shut down line, try to uh, stifle opponents whenever possible. It's an especially tough role on the road with with the several road games back to back because they're going to get the unfavorable matchup. But I think that they have been playing very well. Uh, you know, and and I know I'm a huge fan of Kelly Urncroak, um, equally huge fan of Austin Watson. I think I've seen Mika Salamaki be a very effective player. I've seen him be completely invisible. Not really sure where he is going, what kind of player you're going to get from Salamaki every night. Um, I think if I could, if I summed him up, I would say a player who knows how to perform when they need him to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to kind of really uh, peak during those those tough games when you just kind of need someone to step up. So, uh, and, and Nashville, I think, is actually, in, and I, I, you know, I hate to chase him down into the abyss that I've sent him to is is this Cody McLeod you know ever since I've seen Cody McLeod be out of the lineup I think I've been really impressed um, by the fourth line that Nashville's putting out again it's usually some combination of these guys you'll see Yarncroak in there a lot he'll kind of hop between the second or sorry the third and fourth line Watson's almost always on the fourth line um, but in the past let's see I, I, I had pulled up I guess in the past uh, two games so in the LA game and the Arizona game uh, this fourth line, Salamaki, Watson, Yarncroak, they have 15, almost 16 minutes of time on ice in those two games. Uh, 50% Corsi, 50% Fenwick. So they're uh, holding completely even with their opponents. Uh, they are starting, yeah, it's exactly, again, we're talking about a fourth line here. Okay. They have generated two high danger chances. They have not allowed a single one. And they are starting in the offensive zone just 35% of the time. What all this means is basically they are exactly what you want from a fourth line. You're not looking for playmakers. You're not looking for highlight reels from this fourth line. You're looking for a grinding roll, a grinding line that will shut down opponents, frustrate opponents, uh, give your top six a break when you just need to to kind of uh, you know suppress an opponent for a quick shift. Well, and that is exactly what they've done. So, so they, I, and, I for one am hugely impressed. Go ahead. And they played 16 minutes on ice, and I know. Then in this last game, they played against they played about four and a half to five minutes against Andre Kopitar's line, and I remember that they played uh, about uh, three to four minutes against uh, Clayton Keller's line in Arizona, which means they spent the majority of their time against first or second line competition. Which, if you can get this numbers from your fourth line against first or second line competition, you're rolling in it. 
you as a as a coach, I would be elated to to see these numbers from this. And I don't expect the offense to kind of stay the same. Um, you know, two goals from Austin Watson probably isn't going to happen. <laughs> you know their PDO right now through those two games. <laughs> Hundred and fifty. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's probably anyway. Fall. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, they're not generating a ton of shots, but look at them. Look where they're starting. They're in the defensive zone. They don't need to generate shots. What they need to do is suppress shots, and they're doing it. They have thirteen shot attempts for, but they blocked four of them, which which means that they blocked about a third or a fourth rather. Sorry, my math skills aren't that good. Um, <laughs> it's just. It's absolutely incredible. This is exactly what you want from your fourth line. And I like that as this as this has gone on, as the last two games have gone on, we've start we've kind of stopped seeing the the displacement of time between these between uh, the four lines where you have, you know, the first and second line eating fifteen or sixteen minutes a night at five on five and then like the third and fourth lines get to play eight to now all four lines are kinda of playing between eleven and thirteen minutes. And it's really working out, I think. I think that all the lines are doing very well. Uh, a lot of coaches, John Stevens, most notably in LA, uh, was playing Kopitar, was trying to match Kopitar against the Crook line, and through the first like two periods, was doing it religiously, and all of a sudden, the third period, he stopped. And that's because that's because he kind of figured out like, oh, this isn't working. This isn't going to work, and you know that's the mark of a good coach is not beating your head against the wall until until you know the wall cracks. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, Until your head cracks yeah, more accurately. Yeah, more accurately. Um, I was a little disappointed. Uh, at least in the final mid of the game, they sent out Yernkroke and Watson, and they sent they took out Salamaki and put in Sissons, which I wasn't really a big fan of at all. But what are you going to do? Pierre Leviot's going to make that mistake ten times out of ten. Apparently, um, <laughs> I was. I really like Yernkroke and Salamaki together, and I always had a feeling that I'd like Watson and Yernkroke together just because of how similarly they are. At least how they how they have been. On, on stat sheets and it's kind of nice just to see something that you thought would work out actually work out it's kind of it makes me feel justified in my love for for all three of these guys yeah and and uh, Watson's been like my cult hero I guess uh for pretty much two years now I like the fact that he, he'll get down and block three shots in the same shift uh he's on the penalty kill he's playing the tough minutes um he'll fight when he needs I mean he's just he uh, he understands that he's not a superstar and he wants to contribute as as much as he can and he does it very well. So, um, big fan of Austin Watson. I love Callie Arnkirk. He does just an incredible job being a shutdown center. And uh, like I said, I think Salamaki is a is a solid uh, player to be in there as in the in a bottom six role as well. Mm. Um, we've been talking. So I guess we've been talking about the bottom six now for a while, but a, mm. a player that you've kind of noticed in the top six that's that's been slumping recently is Ryan Johansson, who, in my opinion, is is the absolute uh, key to the, to this offense clicking. I know the the phrase, and I'm going to steal the phrase you're going to use: the st- uh, straw that stirs the drink. Oh, damn it! You know, even when you're not right. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, you put me on the spot with the trick, uh, the Gerard Gallant question. So there uh-huh. you go. I'll steal your your. Uh, whatever tagline or whatever yeah. uh anyway um yeah basically even when you're not noticing ryan johansson i think that he is his vision and his creativity is what makes this offense work uh, as long as he's on the ice obviously uh lately he's been he's been in a bit of a slump we like you mentioned he did get a point um i guess uh, saturday night but uh I, I i guess i'll just pose the question to you and then put you on the spot a little bit 
Uh, if Johansson is in fact in a slump, why why do you think that would be? Why do you think the issue is there? Uh, I think one of the big things was Philip Forsberg going down to injury, but a lot of his struggles could probably be traced back to earlier in, in the season. And I think it's his issues kind of are what are plaguing the Predators right now, where they're just not really getting to those high danger areas. And you know, Johansson's a passer, and if there's no one to be passed to in those high danger areas, I think his points are going to dry up. And one of the things that I think Victor Arvidsson did really well last season was he got himself into those high danger, you know, mucky areas, and he somehow performed really well in those. And now that there's no one to really pass to there, and you know, now that Forsberg can't take a shot from the top of the slot, and it just magically appears in the net, I think Johansson's points are going to be hurting, and his play is going to be hurting. I think that, I think that he would benefit from a more possession-heavy kind of offense rather than a quick transition game. Not to say that Johansson's slow by any stretch of the imagination, but passers, especially you know, puck puck possession dominating passers, usually tend to do well in those heavy games that uh, the LA Kings or even the San Jose Sharks, you know, do. Um, so I, I kind of think that that might be the issue is that it might be a stylistic issue rather than a just a personal issue. I think once things kind of change around him, we'll start to see him shine. I don't necessarily know if it's just his play, though, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And, and I think, I mean, it's the obvious answer right now is if he doesn't have Forsberg. Uh, but like you said, I think that maybe his issues have been stretching a little beyond just Forsberg being out. And as we've seen, um, they they tend, the Laviolette's kind of moving Philip around the lineup, uh, maybe trying to get some more production out of the lower lines. But I think the reason that uh, that first line, that Johansson, uh, Forsberg, Arvidsson, I think the reason that line works so well is that each of those three players has such a different style of play, and yet they all do it very well. Uh, you know, on, on a good night, they're all doing it very well. Like you mentioned, Johansson will find just incredible passes. He, he skates very well. He's very strong on the puck. He can maintain possession and find a pass. Forsberg has just an unbelievable release. Um, he's got, you know, he's he kind of an, almost an Ovechkin role. Like he is a shooter. He you get him get him the puck in the right position, and chances are it's going in the net. Arvidsson, again, like you mentioned, he, he's he's there to shield a goaltender. He'll get it behind the goal and and get the puck uh, when they send it in deep. You know, he can beat the icing. You know, he's he's just a high energy um, kind of uh, fearless type of player, and he'll he'll create the chaos. And so those three pieces really work together well. Arvidsson creates the chaos. Johansson finds the pass to Forsberg. Forsberg puts it in the net. And obviously that's that's a very, um, you know, that's an idealized situation. It does work on, on a lot of nights, but it doesn't all, you can't expect all those pieces to really click all the time. But you're, it's, it's weird. It's, it is odd because I think Johansson is just so much better than his points suggest. Um, even really better. Well, I, I would say better than his possession numbers um, suggest, but his, his possession stats have been very solid all year. He's, I think pretty much around the top three or four players on this team for shot, like shot generation, for example, shot attempts. So it's slumped for Johansson. I think, you know, it's not the end of the world at this point, because I think the offense is still finding ways to produce. You saw four goals, um, against LA. So, you know, getting from players like Austin Watson, you know, who, uh, are not goal scorers by any stretch of the imagination, but you you know they're going to need to find that creativity in those bottom six production when when you get some slumping uh, top line perhaps. And I think that we should we could all expect the the scoring to decrease with Forsberg being out. 
uh, I think that they can still get it done. I think they can figure out how to channel the puck through other areas and, and find it scoring. So I don't think the Forsberg injury is really the end of the world. I don't think Nashville's going to lose two out of three games until Forsberg gets back. At least I hope not. Um, I guess that could very well be the case. Uh, but speaking, I guess, speaking of the Forsberg injury, it's it's all things considered not really a bad time to lose your top shooter um, for a few weeks because after this Edmonton game on Tuesday night, they will have seven days off. Um, as, you know, every team in the NHL is, is mandated now to have a week off at some point during their season. Of course, we did see last year that that seemed to be a curse more than a blessing. Most teams who came back from that break performed pretty poorly for their first few games. Um, but on paper, anyway, it, it gives Forsberg a lot more time, or it, rather, it gives the Predators some a break from games without Forsberg. I think it will really benefit Pecorine, um, who, you know, to my knowledge, is not injured or anything, but you know, an older body, older, uh, very acrobatic goaltender, athletic goaltender, is going to need um, some of those breaks every now and then. So I think I think it'll be very good for him. Some of the players that have been dealing with. Maybe some lingering injuries. Uh, you know, even Ryan Ellis, who will have you know a couple games back, and then and then get to take a, a short little break just to kind of monitor his his condition. Uh, I think you and I might be toying with the suspicion that Benino is still slightly injured. Um, you know, it's just some of these these minor things that that have been sort of bothering the Predators. I think this week off will give them a nice a nice chance to rebound from that. Um, but maybe you disagree. Maybe you think this is a bad thing to happen. What, what's your opinion on this, this week off coming up? Uh, I, I do like it in general. I'm a little curious to see if any changes actually happen because I think this is probably the last, probably like the, yeah, the last time where, where any systematic changes will occur. Um, the Predators have seven days off, which means absolutely no practicing and pretty much no communication between coaches and players, which is, which is nice. Um, it does. It does usually t- mean there's going to be a little bit of rust uh, when when the plane starts again. But that that's fine. It doesn't matter if that happens in a game or two. Um, yeah, I kind of I like the, that there's an off week just because it kind of creates a little more havoc. Uh, personal problem with the my, my personal problem with uh, with the off week though is it kind of messes up the standings a bit because there'll be yeah that's true yeah, there'll be teams that have played like five more games than than another team. It's kind of like well. This is really frustrating to look at and kind of determine if you know this team is really that good or if they just had five more games to play. Yeah, it's it is an it is an interesting thing. I think for Nashville, the fact that they're not playing super well right now, I think it's a good thing. If they were really on a hot tear, I th- I would be a little more worried about it affecting their play coming back, just stopping their momentum. But I think right now. Stopping the momentum is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right. Nashville is already. I think. We're frequently two or three games behind those around uh, Nashville in the standings. So this will, although I, I assume you know, I haven't even looked to see what uh, what the other teams are that have this this break. I know they tend to clump them together a little bit. Yeah, I don't know how to find that out either. But I guess. <laughs> um, the other good thing, of course, coming up is at the end of the month, uh, the All Star breaks. So that'll that'll be I think four ish four days off. Is yeah, right? like four or five. Um, yeah. Yeah, so again, we're that's just, you know, it's about a week and a half to 2 weeks uh out of Forsberg's injury that he won't have to miss any games. So that's great. Yeah. Um and again, more rest for players like Pecorine and um those players that might be dealing with some minor injuries. Speaking of, and, of the All-Star. Oh, go ahead. 
So yeah, the All-Star break, we have P.K. Subban announced as the captain. Then, oh, we have double Predators representation at the All-Star game. Uh, P.K. Subban, as you mentioned, is the second year running the All-Star captain for the Central Division. And Peter Laviolette is the coach for the Central Division. Um, I think Subban is a shoo-in for this kind of thing. It's a fan vote, and they're, I think fans are going to tend to vote for players that have the most you know fun and engaging personalities, and Subban is certainly... Um, love him or hate him, he's one of the most prolific personalities in the league. So I think it's it definitely makes sense. I don't really understand why Peter Laviolette has been selected as the coach. I was going to ask, um, do you think that they're they're going to play a zone three on three? He just treats it like a normal game. Yeah. Oh god, that would be so funny. It's good if they play zone. If they play zone in, in the three on three, I'll just that'll be the funniest thing I've seen. Here. Oh, that's gonna be great. Uh, I like I like the All Star Game. You know, it's not the Olympics, but it's okay. It's fine, I guess. I don't know. It was so boring last year. I'll be honest; it was boring as hell last year. If only there was something to spice it up. Like I don't know, someone with a good personality that probably shouldn't have been there, but was elected regardless because the fans wanted to spite, wanted to spite the NHL. If only there was a player like that in the NHL. Other day. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, the, yeah, I think that it, the Nashville All-Star Game, you know, might have, have put a unrealistic expectations on future All-Star Games, uh, obviously with the John Scott thing. And the, uh, I think Nashville just created a pretty good atmosphere. Um, and then the, for whatever reason, I just thought that Los Angeles weekend was so boring. Other than Snoop Dogg dropping F-bombs um, <laughs> from the opening moments. That was pretty funny. That was pretty great. That may have been the highlight of the year for me. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I'm with you. Like, All-Star game's fine. It's it's a – you take it for what it is. You know, you people get into the – I was – to be fair, I was frustrated <laughs> watching the, the actual All-Star game itself, uh, or at least, I guess, the semifinal uh, Central Division's only appearance. The Central Division just looked so bad. I think they lost like 7-2 to two or something in there, and it was, it was frustrating because those are the players that I know best, and I was like, yeah, do something. <laughs> Um, nope. but you know, again, that said, please don't take this so seriously. It's the all-star game is supposed to be fun. It's, um, it's supposed to give players like Victor Arvidsson a chance to go to the Bahamas and play with pigs, uh, which he did last year, which was great. I didn't, I'll send you that, that picture if you don't have it, George. I, I don't, I haven't seen that yet. It's a bathing suit clad Victor Arvidsson holding a pig. Sign um, me up. Yeah. <laughs> what else do you need to know? Um, so anyway, all that said, especially with well, with this week off uh, coming up, the the Predators only have one game in the next seven days, and that would be against the. Uh, uh, I'm tr- I always this this word always escapes me. It's like the, the you know slumping, but kind of sputtering. Maybe sputtering is what I'm looking for. I'm thinking of like a plane that's having trouble staying up. It's sputtering. That is what I would use to describe the Oilers. Yes, the sputtering Edmonton Oilers. You say um, you, you talk about a plane that has trouble staying up. I think the Oilers are more represented by a plane that hasn't gotten off the ground yet. kind of went into the ditch uh, the runway um i well i say that because i actually looked at the at their place in the standings just now and then i of course got rid of it so i'm not remembering and they're actually doing a little bit better than i thought they were um they're up to eight uh yeah 18 wins uh they have 39 points in 43 games uh you know again not good Uh but 
I thought they were like down still in the twenty or you know high twenties point range. So the fact that they're at thirty nine is is much better than I was thinking. They have they're four five and one in their last ten games, and they're on a two game losing streak. The only yeah. question I have for you is, how good do you think Rasmus Dahlin is going to look in blue and orange? Oh my god! <laughs> Can you imagine? I can't because I imagined it with Connor McDavid and Ryan Hopkins and Taylor Hall. And Neil Yakupov and all those guys, and it came true. And now I'm afraid to imagine. <sighs> yeah. Um, I mean, the Sabres are giving them a run for the money. Obviously, the Coyotes are giving them a run for the money. Um, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There's there's ping pong balls that decide things now. It's going to be the Edmonton <laughs> Oilers. That's true. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the team with the best... Uh, best player of his generation is now going to get the other best player of his generation. <laughs> Adaline looked so good in the world juniors. Oh my god, that that championship game was incredible. The, I know. I actually think that team I think that team uh Sweden kind of got uh handled poorly by the referees. Not not to not to use any any appropriate inappropriate language, but uh, Oh, very nice. Yeah, I think that the I think the referees took it to him a little bit. Um but yeah, yeah. Ron Zestali and Timothy Lilligran look so good together. Holy smokes. Uh, um, I love my Swedish defenseman. Anyway, defense that's, the, uh, that's the Oilers of the future. Yeah, uh, The Oilers of the present, uh, like I said, they're sitting uh, sixth in the... Uh, <laughs> as, as Google, if you search NHL standings in Google, it will tell you that the Oilers are sixth in the AHL Western Conference, okay, it does which the, is not the case. It does that for you too, because it, that's what it does. Yeah. I, don't, I thought it was just like my, my computer... Messing up, but they say that the Lightning are in the ACC Atlantic. <laughs> uh, the Capitals are leading the Metro, the Jets are leading the Central, and then the Golden Knights are leading the HL Western. I mean, <laughs> so I don't really know where I, I know, like, uh, Google's getting this. I know, like, the Atlantic and the Pacific aren't good, but come on, man, like, you gotta at least yeah, call right, them by, right, the, by the real right. names. They are NHL, conf- <laughs> NHL division still. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, they're yeah, so 18 wins, like you mentioned, they've lost two straight. I think they're they have. What is it? They've scored. Oh, I don't remember what it is. It's something ridiculous. Oh, they sc- Their goal differential in the past like five games is so funny. I think it, they they've been outscored sixteen to three in the last four games. Yeah, or I something think like it's that. something. It's around there. Oh, here. It is in the last five games. Oilers have been outscored twenty to three. Oh, um, jeez. Yeah, and the, and of course we all remember uh, the last time these teams faced off. Saros got that uh, franchise record shutout. Um, so the Oilers are having trouble scoring, it would seem. Yeah. Which makes sense, you know, because they only have, uh, you know, generational superstar on their team. <laughs> well, the, But it seems like maybe he's the only player they have on their team. They traded away all their good wingers, and now they have nothing. Except for Jesse Pliarvi. <sighs> yeah. I mean, they've got... I've seen some interesting ways that the Oilers could perhaps rearrange their roster, their lineup, to make at least one very dominant line. Um but it would always just end up being one dominant line and the rest of the team is, uh, is shaky at best. Let me, you, that said, I think Nashville's got to win this game. Uh, it's in home. It's sorry, at home in Bridgestone arena. Uh, it's just, it's the last game before a week long break. They've been struggling lately. They need to take advantage of an opponent like Edmonton. I think Nashville's got to win this game. Well, I mean, who's Edmonton got? Yeah. You put a lineup there of like, McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Pujarvi, and then your second line's Ryan Nugent-Hopkins and Milan Lucic and 
Mark Letestio. Yeah, that's like, exactly what it was. Yeah, it's not good. And granted, McDavid will probably be good for a goal or two, but you you throw Subban and Ekholm on McDavid, and you just you hope for the best. And you you hope to beat him for the other three lines that are out there for the other right. forty minutes that McDavid's not going to play. Yeah, 